three, two, one. Sits and soul, welcome back. It is Tuesday. That means we are talking live, unless you're listening later. I've got Mackenzie with us today. Uh, Chris is out. So Mackenzie, welcome to the show. Thank you. And we have a really cool guest. If you've listened for a while, you have heard the great white mention Kim Scott, radical candor, more than once. And so we have the man, the CEO himself, Jason. Welcome to the conversation. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. So um, why don't you give us the history of how Radical Candor came to be a company? Mm, Yeah. So uh, many people who are familiar with Radical Candor may not even realize this is the second company uh, dedicated to Radical Candor. When Kim was writing the book, she actually founded an organization called Candor Inc., whose goal was to build software, essentially, to support radical candor in organizations. Uh, And in 2017, they they actually closed that business because what they realized was that um, software, so taking out your phone, was kind of a value-subtracting round trip in having sort of real human conversations with with other people. Uh, And so a a lot of the products they tried to build were like great in concept and some people really liked them, but were really hard for a lot of people to use. And it was kind of getting in the way of the most important thing, which is helping people slow down and have a real conversation. And so she and I met uh, in the summer, like right, right as she was writing the blog post, which you can find on our website uh, about winding that company down. And I was transitioning out of an organization called Khan Academy, which is an online educational not-for-profit. People in the US probably are aware of it, especially because of the pandemic. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of people were using it at home with their kiddos. And so I had spent a lot of time building software around learning and education. And what I, one thing I appreciated through that process was the exa- I had, I learned the exact same lesson, which is that there are some things which are fundamentally social endeavors, learning and collaborating are social activities. Um, and th- there's a real value in making sure that we don't lose sight of the importance of those human connection elements. And so I was, she was meeting me at a moment where I was trying to figure out a way of investing more heavily. I want to put my energy toward helping people support the, those, the, the human connections that really made the work that we do, whether it's education or tech or really anything um, that requires collaboration possible. And so fall of 2017, we founded the company, uh, Radical Candor as it exists today. So if you go to the website, that's the, that's the company, radicalcandor.com. Um, and ever since we've been working on scalable and not scalable ways of teaching people what Radical Candor is and isn't, uh, and uh, helping people unlock the ability that they already have to have real human conversations with each other. That's super cool. And I want to get into the ways that you're you're doing that now as a company. For the people, if there's anyone out there that isn't familiar with the book or the philosophy or the movement of Radical Candor, debrief us on that real quick. Sure. At its simplest level, Radical Candor is about caring personally and challenging directly. Uh, and the reason why uh, Kim felt it was so important 
to distill this concept was that in her career, and I, I, I experienced this certainly, I think many other people have, it was present, it's often presented to us as a choice, either be effective or be kind. You know what I'm saying? Mm, yeah. uh, and so Kim was like, no, I don't know. Can I swear on this podcast? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's <laughs> Kim was like, that's bullshit. That's a bullshit dichotomy. It's not real. Um, there are people who have managed to do both of these things at the same time. And so another way to say it is it's about, it's about learning to be kind and clear simultaneously. And for me, and for a lot of people who see it, I think what it unlocks in them is this feeling uh, of harmony between how we want to be as people in the world and how we want to approach and, and a, an effective way to approach our work. And, and so that I think is the power of it. So it's this really simple idea, but it's actually really hard to pull off because there are all yeah. of these things like social cues and structures and stuff that discourage us from caring personally and challenging directly, like things that move us down on caring personally and things that cause us to move away from challenging uh, one another directly. Uh, and so that's really what we've been focused on is figuring out how do we help people, one, how do we help them unlearn that sort of dichotomy? How do we help them get the idea that this is a choice out of their head, number one? And number two, um, how do we help them sort of rebuild some muscles around each of those dimensions? How do we help people learn to move up on care personally or out on challenge directly? That's, I have a million questions. <laughs> Jason, like, okay, so here, here's the first one and maybe I'll just make this therapy. I don't know. Um, okay, sure. I, I'm wondering, like, if you've got high care, but low challenge. Yeah. I think it's really easy to say, well, I just don't want to hurt their feelings or whatever, but I'm wondering, is that more about me than it is them? <laughs> yeah. Great, great question. Uh, so we call that ruinous empathy. So if you, if you look at the book, if you pick up a copy of the book, but you'll see that we, we like all good business books, there's a two by two. So <laughs> you can't, can't write a business book without a two by two. Um, but we have these dimensions named. So when you do care personally, but you fail to challenge directly, we call it ruinous empathy. And I think sometimes it's about the other person, especially, I, I think this has become like endemic uh, in the pandemic. Uh, <laughs> like people are burnt out. Like, I, like they're at their wits end in various ways. I mean, if you as I'm sure you know, working with other organizations, like you have people who are, who it's not that they're working from home. It's that they're trapped at home. You know what I'm saying? Like there's a yeah. big difference. Yeah. Uh, and on top of that, they're, uh, you know, whereas school was providing at least one meal a day for kids. Now you're, you're cooking an extra meal. Plus you're running their classroom and making sure that they're staying on top. Like, the stress that people have been under has been tremendous. And I think there's a lot of managers in particular who are looking at that and saying like, how can I, how can I give, like, you know, how can I give feedback to this person who's right. like barely holding on to sanity or in some cases not uh, yeah. uh, suffering from mental illness as a result of this. And so I do think ruinous empathy is a real thing. Like there are some times when we hesitate really in, in, because we believe it's in the best interest of the other person. Um, Before you go I, on, there's people listening that are like, okay, so do we give those person that are barely hanging on? Do we give them the feedback that, hey, you're not cutting it because you're barely holding on? Exactly. I, I think the answer is yes. I think the, again, this is the, where we believe that somehow the, the choice between being clear and kind are, it's a dichotomy, but I don't actually think that that's true because 
in most cases, in my experience, people who are really struggling know that they're really struggling. Yeah, and it can true. actually be a relief to say, hey, I know you're really struggling and I want to figure out a way to support you because hopefully this is temporary, right? Like hopefully we're going to get out of this at some point. And I know that you're capable of doing this work. So let's have a real conversation about how we can navigate this for the time being. Like, what can we do to best support you and make sure that we're not, you know, constantly missing client deadlines, for example, like how can we find a way uh, through that together? I think that conversation has a potential to be really healing as opposed to harmful. This episode is brought to you by Delegate Solutions. Many entrepreneurs are overwhelmed, burnt out and frustrated because they aren't able to spend enough time on their highest and best work. They know they need to delegate to an assistant, but they don't want the responsibility of managing one. At Delegate Solutions, we provide leaders with a different approach to admin support without the hassles of committing to an employee. We support our clients remotely in as little as one to two hours per day, all the way through to full time. Our systematic approach includes customized delegation coaching, to help you figure out what and how best to delegate, coupled with a team of thinkers and doers to continually get those things off your plate. We love to help visionary leaders free up time so they can do more of what they love and make a big impact. Learn more about Delegation Support System by visiting DelegateSolutions.com. I was on the phone with um... Um, Jonathan Reynolds, who runs Titus Talent, and he's got this awesome manage for performance. It's like a dashboard with like, you think it's marketing analytics, the way he's looking at it, but he's looking at it and he's showing me like every person and how they're performing and everything. And he's got this one person that's orange on their thing. They're performing at 63%. So he goes to his manager and he's like, just tell me that they have personal stuff going on and I'm good. But yeah. if they don't have personal stuff going on, there's absolutely, you know, we'll support them through personal stuff. But if they're yeah. just not performing, then we've got to do something. Sorry, right. Mackenzie, I cut you off. I got excited there. What were you oh, saying? No, yeah. Well, I'm excited too. I think when, when we're talking through that, that ruinous empathy, I, I totally fall into that category sometimes where I don't want to be the bad guy. And the other side of it is like, especially if you're... Um, a business that's developing processes and developing structures, it, I would imagine like, it's hard to like, a lot of times I almost take it on my myself, which is not helpful to say like, they probably didn't do a good job because I just didn't give them the, uh, like, I didn't give them the box to work in, you know, but yep. we're not talking about the box at all, you know, like, but, um, so that, that's one thing that, that I, I was thinking of as you were saying that, and, and maybe you can, add to this, but as you're saying, like, if we don't address them or we, or we address them in too blunt of a way, it could create hiding, like where people just don't bring stuff up. They just don't, uh, they don't tell you about it. Yep. Yeah. I, I think the, I, I getting back bench to getting back to the other, other half of your question, like, when is it about us? Like the, I, I think, so not wanting to be the the bad the the bad cop in this situation mm -hmm. i think that's more about us than it is about the other person right when we don't want to be perceived as the kind of person who would give this kind of feedback when someone is struggling that that's like our fear taking over our behavior as opposed to 
focusing on what the other person really needs in order to be successful. And that's the low care, low challenge quadrant. So that's that lower left-hand quadrant. And the line between these things is very fuzzy. The problem with a two by two is that you have to draw the line somewhere. And at some point, like the, those become sort of false distinctions from, from each other. Whereas like our motivations are complex. Um, and so the way that I think about this is like, when I feel myself not wanting to give feedback because I'm like, oh, like, you know, this person's going to think that I'm such a jerk. Uh, that is a moment for me to reflect and say, is that the, it, it, am I acting in this person's best interest? Because from my perspective, the job of a manager is to support the success and development of the team and the organization that, that you're working for. Like that's sort of the fiduciary responsibility uh, of management. Uh, and I'm like, am I doing my job? If I avoid this conversation, if I don't have this conversation, uh, that, that's the question that, that I ask myself. I believe that there's a way to have this conversation and be the type of person that I want to be. Mm. You know what I mean? Like to That's be good. the human I want to yeah. be in this conversation is possible. But I, I sometimes I lose faith. Like even after practice for many years, like I still have that same sensation that you're describing, which is like, oof. like I, I just, I feel like there's no way for me to say this without coming off like a total jerk. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. uh, and, and it's at those moments that I think the, practice has helped has helped and so like part of it is just getting the reps in and starting to build some confidence in these muscles that you can kind of navigate those moments do you feel like you're um constantly like as the leader of the company called radical candor and you're leading your people and you know do you feel like there's like some pressure on you to constantly be dishing out the feedback well, actually, I think there's more pressure on me to be soliciting feedback on a regular basis. The the a big part of so when we describe how radical candor gets built like into an organization, uh, it always starts with soliciting feedback, like actually getting feedback from the people that you you work with regularly, whether they're the people who report to you, or your clients, your peers, your or your manager. Like it really does start there, and so I think there's a there's more pressure on me to be open to feedback than there is for me to even give feedback to other people. What are some of the like magic questions you use to get really good feedback? Like the non-obvious where the, where the real truth comes out. Uh, Well, I I will say that there, like this is very situation dependent. (laughs) Like the, I, I approach this very differently depending on the person that I'm talking to or the really, or the sort of nature of the relationship. Um, but one thing that I, I have definitely found is, is like, uh, so with clients, for example, when a client is a little annoyed with you, <laughs> uh, you know what I'm saying? When they're like, when they're willing to say like, oh, we, we didn't, we were disappointed or upset with like how this particular thing went, that is a great time to ask for more feedback. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, they, they're much more likely to like really tell you what they think when they're already just like a little, a, a little annoyed. And that sort of applies internally as well. Like when people are, are so like those, I find those moments to be really helpful. It's less about what I ask, but like energetically when someone is willing to go out of their comfort zone and offer you feedback, like following up in that moment can be really powerful. Um, the other thing that I found to be really useful is starting by recognizing a fault by saying, Hey, I don't think that meeting went particularly well, or I don't think I handled that situation particularly well. Um, and I want to learn from it. I want to figure out how to get better. Uh, 
what could I have done differently in order to more effectively manage the communication with the client or whatever it is. Um, that, that admission that the sort of like offered vulnerability of mm -hmm. I, I am imperfect, I think ha has been probably the most effective thing that I can, that I've done consistently over time. I love that. I was just Let thinking, me... Mackenzie, you do what Jason was just talking about really, really well. Here's like, the question I have though. This is a real, this is a personal, we're going to, this is therapy because I'm asking questions for my own benefit. This, this, I'll, I'm going to make it really personal. So you can answer this, however, but like sure. as a, so I'm for people who don't know what I look like. I'm 29 years old. I'm a female. So I'm a young female in an organization trying to lead people, um, with a bent towards being probably more accommodating and passive, which is probably just my personality, but having all that in mind and then, and then, uh, and then actively trying to approach a situation with that level of humility, where you say, Hey, like, where did I miss it? In my case, I worry a lot about coming off as, um, weak, you know, like, and I would imagine you hear that a lot, like maybe not even from female executives, but like people in general, it's like, if I do that, they're going to think, I don't know, like what I'm doing. Yep. Do you, is that a thing that you hear? And what do you typically say to it? Yeah. So we do, we do hear it. Um, and I do think that there's like, in your case, you're on average, I think you're more, you have more reason to be worried because there's like a mix here of sort of leadership expectations, um, and like good old fashioned sexism and misogyny, right? Like, good like old fashioned. <laughs> like there, there's a, there's a, there's a mix yeah. Of those things happening in your case, the research tells us that it's not really that big of a risk. Um, like there's research out there that says uh, leaders who regularly seek opportunities to grow and develop, like look for feedback, are seen as more effective than their less curious counterparts. Um, and so the like on average, I think you're more people are likely to take that in the spirit in which you're offering it, which is, I, huh. I really won't be able to, to grow and get better. Um, but I think it's good to be, to be skeptical of that. I, I, th I think it's good to be conscious of the, the potential impact of that. On top of that, one of the things I was thinking about before we joined this call is I wonder, it seems like kind of understanding the concept. It's so like case like being having candor with an employee is like very case by case. Yeah. Um, and that this might that might be your answer to my question, but like how do you how do you recommend this these conversations happen or this like relational dynamic happens generationally with diverse groups of people? Like if we're talking about stereotypes that happen or uh, you know, just preconceived notions or uh, you know, even, uh, what do we binge all the time? We talk about like people have baggage, they bring stuff in. Like, Absolutely. how do you approach that? Like, how does a leader approach a variety of people with candor? The, the sentence that we repeat quite often is that we think radical candor is measured, not at the speaker's mouth, but at the listener's ear thematically, that's sort of saying, you, you know, your intention matters, but your impact matters more. The way that I think about this is, is like, there are so many variables here, like my identity, the other person's identity, my position, 
the other person's position, like their power dynamics in these relationships, um, some that are obvious and some that are not so obvious. Um, and so when I say position, that's not just hierarchical, like, you know, in tech organizations, for example, there's a, there's another type of hierarchy, which is like engineering is more important than marketing in tech organizations. So there are these like subtle power different power dynamics in these conversations that distort the way that we perceive these things. And then when you get to identity characteristics, right? If you're underrepresented mm -hmm. in an organization, um, you're much more likely a not to receive feedback because people are nervous, are, are afraid of being sexist, racist, yeah. homophobic, whatever it is. Um, so like that's one whammy. The second whammy is that when you do receive feedback, some of it is going to be bias and not feedback, right? Some of it is going to be based on people's preconceived notions and not at your actual performance. Uh, and then when you offer feedback, if you're underrepresented, um, you're much more likely to be unjustly accused of being what we call obnoxiously aggressive, um, which is like direct, but not caring. Um, the funny thing about all of this is that it's really proximity and exposure that changes those things. Like we actually need to have these conversations as human beings with one another in order to start to unwind some of that. And that doesn't mean that mm. you can handle this completely one-on-one. -on -one. Organizations still need to invest in IND training, right? Like we need to start to help people understand what bias is and how it might be impacting their thinking at a broad level. But in, in some ways, like the only way out is through, like the only way out of us not being candid with each other is to take some small steps towards being more candid with each other. Um, and I think like that, that part of it feels sort of scary to people, but that's why I like the two by two as a visual because the axes have lengths, right? Like you don't have to be all the way out on challenge directly or all the way up on care personally in order to be radically candid, right? We can be just above the line on care, on, uh, just above the x-axis and just to the right of the y-axis and still be in radical candor. And so that's usually the way that I think about this. When I'm unfamiliar with a person, a relationship, may, when there may be power dynamics, like I approach those conversations more gently. It's always, it's easier to move up on care personally and out on challenge directly it's harder to correct if you go too far up on care personally and like weirdly relate to the person and talk about their kids, even though you've never met them before. You know what I'm <laughs> saying? Like, it's hard to move backwards from that. That weird vibe is going to stay. And when we challenge super directly, it's hard to move back. It's hard to like take it back. You know what I mean? It's much easier to start. Um, and so like concretely what that might look like is, you know, I might start with a question like, Hey, you know, I noticed there was some tension in that conversation. Did you notice that? Like is it different than saying, the way that you approach that conversation left a lot of people feeling like they couldn't participate. Like that's a super direct challenge. Um, and there are ways to approach it. So that's, that's sort of like start smaller <laughs> yeah. um, and don't start with giving criticism either. I think when you're building relationships, like start by soliciting feedback, make sure that you're offering praise, like recognizing the things that the person does well. It goes back to that original story from when Cheryl Sandberg talked to, to Kim Scott, you know, she gave her the subtle, the subtle hint and she didn't get it. And so she had to ramp up that candor, right? Yeah. And, and yeah. hit her upside the face. Yeah. But luckily Kim knew that it was coming with a sense of care for her and support. And hey, we're we're here to help you through this, right? Yeah. Exactly. Normal. Exactly. Do you have any um just paradigms for help? You know, the language I would put around what you were talking about is is sometimes 
we've got to filter out the noise from the signal, right? When we're getting the feedback and who it's coming from and their state of mind and emotional health and all of those things. Is, is there any, is there any tool in there for how heavily we weight certain feedback? The way that I think about this is the more power you have, the more weight you need to give to feedback you receive. Something that you said, Mackenzie, made me think of uh, a conversation that we've had internally a few times. Um, and there's this comedian, Hannah Gadsby, who's done a couple of specials yes. on, on Netflix. And she talks about how humility can turn into humiliation for people without power. Um, yeah. And we, we talk about that a lot internally. And so I think the idea of like, when I, when we say like, be open to feedback, I mean, part of this is, is because we're, a lot of this is targeted at leadership, at people with positional or institutional power. Um, even those people are, as you're describing, <laughs> like we're subject to the biases of society, the society that we live in. Um, we may get feedback that is unhelpful and unfair. That's more like bias or even bullying than it is like actual feedback uh, about our performance. Mm. Um, and so that's why, like for me, as white male CEO, <laughs> like I, I take I take every piece of feedback that I get pretty seriously, um, and because. And then as an executive or someone with positional power, I think even perceptual feedback, even if it's unfair, is also sort of like, I still treat it like a gift, right? Because I'm like, well, this person's telling me what they really think, right? Like that, that that's helpful to know that even though it might be coming from a biased place, that this perception exists. Yeah. Um, and I can be annoyed that society slash our culture have not corrected for that problem. But at the same time, I'm kind of grateful to know that that was an expectation of me that I, that I didn't meet, even if I don't think it was fair to expect it of me in the first place. Um, so power, I think it's sort of like, a, it sort of power corrupts, right? Like it corrupts relationships. Um, and one counter, one way to counterweight that is to take feedback that you get seriously. Um, even if you think it's perceptual, even if you think it's incorrect in some way to know like, Hey, this person doesn't think I took their point of view into account, even though I did, like, even though I did, like the fact is that I did, they don't feel it, right? They, they didn't feel that thing. And so they gave me that feedback. So even though it's unfair, it's really helpful for me to understand that because there's something I can learn from it, which is I need to do something differently in communicating with this person in the future. I'm sure. Yeah. You can probably learn about them and yourself in that moment. Absolutely. Um, Jason, if this is a brand new conversation for an organization, how do you start to bring it into the DNA, bring it into the club? Like, how do you start small if this has never been part of the culture? I think there is like, there are some sort of unwritten or, or like, sometimes you may need to start before radical candor. Like one of the unwritten sort of assumptions of radical candor, although Kim does address this in, in the book, uh, it's not a thing that made it to sort of like popular, to the popular discussion is that there's an assumption of like a growth mindset here, right? Yeah, for sure. of, of a belief that we can grow and change that our abilities aren't fixed. Uh, and so for some organizations, like part of the problem is that people have very fixed mindsets. And like, that's the thing that you need to unlock first is to say like, no, we can grow and get better. It doesn't matter the position I hold in the organization, like I have an opportunity to improve. And some organizations, like that's really where we're starting is like in that conversation with people like, uh, there was a linguistic thing. We worked with a client where I wrote for, they, they asked me for some copy for something. And I wrote 
something like regardless of a position, um, you know, everybody has the ability, uh, everybody has like the need to grow and get better. Um, and they change it to most people have the need to grow and get better in the version that they sent. And I was like, why, why was it so important to like make that change? <laughs> like what, what, who are we protecting with the, with the most people? And it's that kind of stuff that I think is like a sort of bedrock foundation, foundational thing. And some, and from my perspective, you can teach some of that, but at some point that's just like a readiness metric for me. It's like, do people have some degree of introspection, some degree of sort of self-awareness and some belief that they have the ability to grow and change? Like that, that's really where we want to start. And then next, I think in most organizations who are completely new to this conversation, my question is usually to, to people as individuals, regardless of their position, do you feel like you are growing um, you're getting better at your job, uh, at a rate that you're happy with. Like, are you happy with the rate that you're growing and developing? And almost universally, regardless of position, people are like, no, I'm I, like, there's so much more that I could, like, I feel like I could be so much better at this. And so starting with like the self-development, starting with the sort of managing myself angle, I think is really helpful because if we try to make the argument too soon that like what we need is like a culture of radical candor and everybody needs to sort of buy into this without convincing people at an individual level of this would be a value to them. I think like that, um, that's mistake because ultimately it takes real, like it takes my energy as an individual to actually participate fully in this. And so there better be something in it for me. <laughs> yeah. I love that question. It even sounds like I mean, like most things, it all seems to come back to, I mean, the person at the top or the people at the top. It's like, I would imagine unless they are living it out 80, 90, 9% somewhere in there, then, then it's going to be really hard for the, for the rest of the organization to feel like it's a real, you know, way of a real culture that's being instilled. Adding on to that, one of the things that um, and there's, by the way, there are radical candor has tons of resources beyond the book. And I think the best places to go to their website, they've got, um, they've got a hilarious video series, by the way, that maybe you can tell us about, um, sure. but they've in a blog and a podcast, um, and a great, like six minute overview of the concept. And one of the things that Kim said is like, in order to start with radical candor, it's uh, get it first, meaning like solicit the feedback, like you're talking about, then give it. And then the third one was gauge it. And I mm -hmm. want to ask you about that. I know most people, they like need a barometer or they need like a, we need a scale or a score. Like how do we, how do you um, measure it over time? Yeah, absolutely. Like one of the reasons why I loved this framework was because it was one of the first frameworks around feedback that I thought the goal of it was to evaluate the feedback conversation, not the person's personality sitting on the other side of you. It wasn't like a trick that you can use if I think or act in a certain way. It was sort of like, how do we evaluate good feedback and bad feedback? You know what I'm saying? Like, what is the difference between those two things? Uh, and I think that, that that is a big part of what drew me to it. It's also a big part of what I think makes the, the framework an effective tool for exactly what you're describing, for being able to gauge how things are going. So the irony is that 
in order to get better at feedback, we need to be able to get feedback on feedback, but that's something that we don't really know how to do because we don't even know what good looks like. And so Kim solved that problem in a very elegant way, which makes it a lot easier. Um, but gauging that, that step of like paying attention to the other person and being curious about how this conversation is landing with them, recognizing that this is like a dialogue and not a diatribe, right? Like it's not just about what I'm saying, it's about how the other person's reacting to it. When we do training, I think that that is one of the places that unlocks sort of the most aha moments for people, which is like, I've been so focused on what I'm saying that I forget to even pay attention to how the other person is responding to the, to the conversation. And something that I've observed over time, and this is probably something I should have learned in my 40 years of having regular sort of social relationships, but it's like, it's not saying the wrong thing that does irreparable relationship harm. It's when you find out that you said the wrong thing, it's how you react to that, that does irreparable relationship harm. And to me, that's what gauging it is all about. It's like, you can make mistakes as long as when you're confronted with that mistake, instead of doubling down on it, which is a thing that I think we do when we get nervous and frustrated, or uh, running away from the conversation, like we need to lean into that discomfort, own the mistake and say, you know, I, I apologize, like, I, I'm sorry, like, I, I, I did not intend for that to happen, but I recognize that that's the impact of this conversation. I recognize this is how it made you feel. Um, and I want to figure out a way to make that better. Like I want to repair it. Um, yeah. that is what gauging it is all about. It's like recognizing those moments and leaning towards them as, a, as opposed to away, away from them. Do you see with the clients that you all work with and the people that are really embracing this, what happens to the business side when, when they're really, when they're gauging it and they're doing it well? Yeah. So, I mean, we have some testimonials of like companies growing hundreds of percent, uh, as they started to embrace, um, radical candor. I think what we know from research is that effective collaboration requires the ability to share ideas with one another without the fear of sort of judgment and reprisal. So Amy Edmondson's work on psychological safety, um, there's like a deep relationship between candor, safety, and innovation, like the ability to get interesting collaborative work done. Um, and so when organizations are doing this well, I think what it un unlocks is uh, the different types of thinking that have been maybe hiding <laughs> in pockets of the organization, yeah. like those quiet voices start to become louder, not because the people are raising their voices, but because people are asking them questions and magnifying the, I, those ideas. And so uh, the primary impact I think is like, you start to actually get some of the promise of, of what diversity is supposed to deliver, which is new kinds and different ways of thinking about problems. And the trust required to get there. Right. And I think there's like a, th this is the, I, there's like a snake eating its own tail catch 22 <laughs> element, which is like, you know, the, there's some good, uh, there, there, there's some pretty reputable research that says, you know, there's two kinds of trust, right? There's sort of granted trust and earned trust. Um, there's some different ways to describe that. Um, but the idea of, of like, to earn trust, I think we have to be more candid with one another. Human beings have incredibly good bullshit. 
detectors. And we know when someone is dissembling, right? We know when someone is, is not telling us the whole truth. And to pretend that that is not actively eroding trust in an organization, I think is a huge mistake. Um, and one of the things that people say is like, hey, you know, how can we build more trust in our organization? And I say, well, stop destroying it first. Like, first stop digging a grave for trust and dumping it in there. And then we can talk about like how to build on top of that. Um, because a really common pattern that we see when we talk to organizations is like people talking about one another instead of talking to each other directly, right? Like, yeah. you know, Slack, Slack is the home of manipulative insincerity in my experience. It's like mm. when, when you want to talk about someone behind their back, there's no better way than a private Slack channel with one or more of your closest friends. And that is happening in almost every organization regard, like even the best organizations have some amount of this. There's just like a human need to gossip. Um, that's very hard to get away from. Uh, and so that that's a sort of interesting thing. People are like, oh, I need trust in order to be more direct. And I'm like, well, one way to build some trust is to be more direct, <laughs> like to be more clear. Yeah. Um, and the reason why I can build trust is I'm not telling you how it is. I am being vulnerable. I am exposing myself. I'm saying, let me tell you how I see the world. And you might totally disagree with me. You might think I'm bananas, right? That that is an act, that is an act of you are granting trust to the other person to say how you really think or feel about something is an is an act of trust in, from my perspective. And so when someone does it for me, I see it the same. I see it the same way. Like I I, I interpret it as this person felt comfortable enough to say this to me, or or maybe felt so uncomfortable they felt forced to say this to me. Yeah, like yeah. that is a that is an incredible act of trust. All right, Jason, love your energy. Thanks for spending time with us. I want you to do a little bit of a commercial for us real quick. Like what are the ways that the companies out there listening, the leaders listening can engage with radical candor, like get your mind, get your philosophy fast-tracked into their organization? Well, there are a handful of ways that you can do that. Uh, First and foremost, like the easiest way uh, for most organizations is buy the book. It's available in every format you can possibly imagine. There's an audio book, there's a Kindle edition, there's hardcover and soft cover. It's translated into a bunch of languages. Um, that's a great way to start. And on our website, we actually have a free resource, which is a chapter by chapter book discussion guide. So if you want a really simple way in, um, you can. that's a great one to punch. Um, we have a couple of courses uh, that are available. Those are sort of like asynchronous self-study type of courses that are available on our website. And then if you're interested in helping your team build some skills and maybe thinking more sort of systemically, systematically about how do we build this in, we also offer um, workshops and keynotes and uh, other types of engagements with organizations to help you go deeper um, with the support of expert facilitation. Love it. And if you could give one piece of wisdom, advice, quote of the day, what would, what would you want everybody to know as we wrap today? Yeah, I think the thing that's on my mind right now is what sort of Mackenzie, what you were saying, which is like lead to the leaders out there. I, I want to say like, Man, manage yourself, like show, show up, <laughs> show up the way that you want people in your organization to show up. It really does start with you. Don't expect people to magically have 
have courage, loan them some courage by, by showing up in an authentic and real way. Awesome. System and soul. I hope you enjoyed Jason, some radical candor challenge for us today. If you enjoyed it, somebody else will too. So give us a like, a star, a review, share it with somebody, give us some feedback because we love feedback. Like we've been talking about today, the good, the bad, the ugly. I appreciate when you guys tell me that one of us talks too much and we get an episode with no <laughs> juicy love, you know, nothing usable in it. I appreciate it. I take it. So send us the feedback and we'll, uh, we'll live what we're preaching here with some radical candor and we'll see you next week.